0: In our latest sermon series, I wanted us to consider ways we can use our bodies more fully for the Lord uh, in the coming year. So, week one of the sermon series, I spoke about using our bodies more fully in worship. Week two, how to um, embody our grief through fasting. Next Sunday, our pastoral intern, Jeff Francian, is going to preach on the death and resurrection of our bodies. Today, does Christianity have something valuable to say about our work? You know, about that part of our life we, we use our bodies you know, most on, and indeed it does. Reading in Genesis chapter 2, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was coming up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. and There he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God put the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of the Holy Spirit that the scriptures read and preached would be received by us with great joy, and we'd hear what it is that that you wish to speak to us today. And as always, we ask this in the name of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Some high school students have a naive expectation that once they graduate tech school or college, they'll find their ideal job Did that describe any of you at that time in life? Certainly described me. You know, that we'll get this job that makes our hearts pitter-patter and happiness, you know, all the rest of our days. I mean, the reality, you probably have heard the studies, is that the majority of Americans, they don't like their jobs. The majority are bored by the tedious monotony of their work. The majority strongly dislike something about their work environment or about management, and most Americans, let's be honest, they work, they're working for a paycheck. They're working, working for the weekend. And if you're a college graduate today, you may be like, ideal job? I'd just be, <laughs> those are, my expectations are much lower than that. I'd just be happy to get work because it is so difficult to find even a decent job. But lots of people don't find their ideal job. That place where their gifts and passions and opportunities all coalesce into something meaningful and enjoyable. So what do, you, what do you do if that describes you? What do you do if you're stuck in a job that you don't like? Uh, we all know that life has a way of boxing us in. Where you, you don't have the freedom to change this career or that career. There's a, there's a point of no return when you can no longer be a dentist. Or a park ranger or whatever. Whatever. And so what do you do when you're stuck? And I've got five things to say, not only to you, but to all of us. Number one, I think all of us need to rediscover the Christian doctrine of vocation. It's from the Latin vocatio, which is callings, or vocar, to call. It's simply the belief that all honest work performed by someone is a calling from God. And the primary purpose of these callings is for us to love and serve our neighbors and not ourselves. And so, what I'm saying in this first point is our vocations are primarily externally related. And that is not the way we normally think about things. In my opinion, the most important book that was probably written in this last year by a Christian was written by a church historian and theolo- theologian by the name of Carl Truman. And the book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's not a book for everybody. It is a very dense uh, 400-page tome of philosophy and history and theology. But he begins it with a provo- in a provocative way. He starts by saying, how did the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, how did that become so coherent and, and uh, meaningful to so many today? I mean, even if that's a statement that you agree with, you'd have to admit that at the turn of millennium, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, everybody would have thought that statement was cuckoo. I mean, completely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And yet today, it's presumably coherent and meaningful to so many. And the answer that he gives, he argues that this has been a long time coming, and it all relates to how we derive our sense of self and personal meaning. How we conceive of the I. Who is this I? Truman goes on, he writes, how that in earlier ages, personal meaning was discovered by individuals through being educated in how to locate themselves within established external structures, such as family, church, or nation. Today, human flourishing is find, found primarily in an in inner sense of well-being. Authenticity today is found by being able to act outwardly as one feels inwardly. And who we are today is largely a matter of personal choice, not external imposition. And you've, I mean, if you've been around all things for a while, you've heard me say things like that before. And a majority of us in this room, we would nod our heads and say, yeah, yeah, that's the problem. But what uh, Truman says is, "These are the intuitions we all share. This is not simply something that people who are not yet Christians believe. This is something that Christians believe. We all share these ins- intuitions, and one of the ways it manifests itself is, is how we think about our jobs. So he said, he gives this personal example. He said, my grandfather was a factory worker, a sheet metal factory worker in Birmingham in the UK. He did that all of his life. And he said, I remember asking him one day, grandfather, do you feel any, um, do you find satisfaction in your work? His answer was that he found his work satisfying because it enabled him to put food on his family's table and shoes on his children's feet. That answer is striking precisely because it is so outwardly directed. Any feelings of satisfaction he had were the result of actions he did for others. He goes on. If you were to ask me the same question, he says, uh, my answer would be that, he's a theology and church history professor, my answer would be I find my work satisfying because I enjoy teaching. You know, it gives me a buzz to stand in front of a class and talk about great ideas. My notion of satisfaction then is primarily an inward directed one. It has less to do with my impact on others and more to do with my own immediate feelings. Do you see, do you follow him? Do you know what he's talking about? Can you hear yourself in his description, uh, in, in his answer? Here's another example. You can probably tell I got a haircut this week. I, I'm one of those people, like, my spa therapy is our haircuts. (laughs) If I could afford 52 haircuts a year, I would do it. I mean, I feel that great. So I'm at Sport Clips up off of Chendon and Linder talking to my hairstylist, making small talk. Really nice lady. Turns out that she cuts hair, but she's also a real estate agent on the side. I said, well, how do you, you know, why and how, how do you like what you do? And she said, the reason um, I do this is because when I was working real estate full time, I found that I really missed doing something with my hands. And the reason that I cut hair is because I just love to work with my hands. There's nothing wrong with that statement, is there? I and mean, that's something that, that we could imagine ourselves saying, something along those lines. But you notice what she's not saying in the statement. She doesn't say, uh, the reason I love my job is because when my client gets out of that chair... He feels like a million bucks, and he looks like a million bucks. It it all has to do with this inward-directed pleasure. And see, our personal sense of satisfaction comes from how this makes me feel more than what this does for you. Our primary buzz is not how I am contributing to the whole— It's how I am contributing to my own satisfaction. And this, friends, is how all of us think. This is the way the modern self thinks. Now, maybe you're wondering, after I've given that illustration, like, Pastor, are you saying that she shouldn't get a buzz working with her hands? No, I think she should. And in the next point, I'll give you the reason why I think we do feel that, that sense of uh, inner satisfaction. But what I am convinced of, friends, is the primary reason... The primary reason why we are so dissatisfied with our work is we've got this internal versus external completely out of balance today. I mean, we're ready to move on to the next job if we're just not feeling it any, any, uh, any longer. The internal completely trumps the external. And therefore, we rarely take into account how important our vocations are for each other. So the doctrine of Christian vocation holds that all forms of work can be meaningful ways to serve others, and it really is all about love. In each of our vocations, what God is doing is he is calling us to particular people, our neighbors with whom we are to love and to serve. So a doctor, for instance, a doctor loves and serves their patients by caring for their health. Teachers love and, and serve their students by caring for their minds. A stay-at-home moms love and serve their kids by doing absolutely everything for them. Toughest job in the world. Uh, rulers are to love and serve their subjects, and citizens are to love and serve each other. We do this all for the common good. You notice how we don't talk about the common good anymore. Again, that external is so far down in our list of hierarch- hierarchical values and priorities. One author asks us to consider how much we need each other's vocations. He says, imagine, let's say you want to just make a chair. Imagine the time it would take for you to make a chair all by yourself. Not only would you have to cut and shape the wood, you'd also have to make the tools. To make the tools, you'd have to mine the ore to make the metal for the saw. I mean, if you want to make your own chair from, truly from scratch— It would take months, perhaps years, to do all the things necessary to create the chair. But when we share in the work of each other and each other's vocations, I mean, you can buy a chair with the monetary equivalent of some numbers of hours worth of your time, and it's not going to take months or years of effort. What we fail to recognize is that is God's call upon every single human being on this planet. And it should make us deeply appreciative for Every bit of work that is done down here. Not only Christian work, but work that is done by people who are not yet Christians as well. All work is service to our neighbors. All work contributes to our neighbor's human flourishing. And by it, we enrich one another and we become more interwoven as people. It's about time that we started to consider that again. So that's number one. Number two... All forms of work are ways for us to image our creator. And therefore, there is dignity and pleasure to be found in it all. If you know anything about church history, you know that one of the sacraments of the medieval church was a sacrament of holy orders which divided the world into the religious sphere and the secular sphere, those who went into full-time church ministry as priests or monks or nuns were considered to be on a completely different you know, spiritual footing than the rest of us. And one of the ways that the Protestant Reformation objected to this was pointing out that, okay, in the case of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not just a preacher, he is also the one who is hovering over the waters of creation. We just read that in Genesis 1. The Holy Spirit, he is a creator. And he is a, uh, he's, he creates um, out of nothing. He forms that which is formless. He, he is a light bearer. He is a gardener. He is an art, uh, artist. To prioritize then the priesthood, over all these other creative um, actions of God, is to deny who God really is. And so the Reformers insisted that all of our work is like God's work, and therefore in all of our work we are imaging our Creator. We effectively serve as sub-creators beneath the Creator, when we read responsibly in Genesis 1, did you notice the things that God does? Because if we are made in his image, one would assume that we would do the things that we see him doing. And what does he do in Genesis 1? Genesis 1.4 says that he separates. He separated the light from the darkness. Later, he separates the ocean from the atmosphere, the land from the sea. And when we in our work separate, we are imaging him. You could use grain for an example. First, the grain must be harvested, which involves what? It involves separating it from the stock. Then the grain must be threshed, which involves separating the germ from the chaff. Then the grain must be ground up and separated further into smaller and smaller pieces. Uh, There is some combination that takes place. Combine it with a little yeast, water, salt, and heat, and voila, you have bread from the baker. But when we separate, we image him. Everything from grain to subatomic particles. When we separate, we image him. What else does God do in Genesis 1? He fills things that are empty. He enlightens spaces that are dark. He forms things that are formless. And so it is with us. When we fill, when we enlighten, when we form, when we speak. You know, of course, that's a, a huge part of the creati- uh, creative activity of God in Genesis 1. He speaks. I mean, human language is incredible. When you think about it, linguists tell us that the human language, every human language, is so incredibly vast and can be combined in so many different ways. They suggest that every single adult human being on this planet has uttered an entirely unique sentence sometime in their life. Isn't that cool? But when we speak, be it speaking in a dumb English composition paper, or speaking in uh, history, or philosophy, or or writing poetry. You know, music is a language when we speak uh, musically. I wonder if you've ever written an entirely original song before. If you have, did you realize that nobody else in the history of the world has ever used those particular combinations of notes, melodies, rhythms, and lyrics to make the thing that you made. I mean, no wonder it feels so cool when you do it. It feels so good to image him when we do it well. I think the reason why the teacher gets a buzz when he stands up in front of his class or the hairstylist when she works with her hands or the farmer with his hands It seems to me that whenever we as a human being, as a unique human being, do the things that God does, but do them in our own unique way and in the own unique situation that we are to do them, um, when we do that, there's a whole lot of do's in there, (laughs) but when we do that, it's like there's this, I don't know, harmonic frequency that just rings through our body and you can feel it in your bones and you're like, yes! This is what i 'm made for. I think that happens because you 're imaging him, and somebody might be like, "Well, I mean, come on, Brad. animals create too. animals build too, but we all know they don 't build the same way. for instance, beavers they 've built dams for millennia, but there 's never been any development in beaver dams, at least none that I know of if we 've got similar." Botanist out here, or not botanist, but biologist out here. you can tell me otherwise. But you know, beaver dams, as much as I know about them, are what they were today, as they were in the beginning. Same thing happens with whales or birds. Whales and birds sing, but they never move from a plain song to four-part chorus to Bach and beyond. Now, human beings in our creating and our imaging, we're always like God, saying, "Let us make." Let us make. Let us improve. Let us do. Let us. And so all human creating is uniquely progressive and developmental. And when we do it well, it feels so good, doesn't it? If you fast forward then from, uh, I guess it's not a fast forward. You just jump from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. You see that God plants or puts Adam and Eve in the garden. There's all kind of work to be done in Genesis 2, in the garden, there's white-collar work, blue-collar work, artistic work. The blue-collar jobs of the Garden of Eden include, include farming and digging and managing animals and construction. The white-collar work includes taxonomy, you know, naming things. I'm sure they had to learn a lot of things. Biology, there's probably some rudimentary chemistry going on. There's theology as they walk with God in the cool of the morning. There's artistry. At the end of chapter 2 in Genesis, Adam writes a love poem and and sings over his new wife Eve. And it's long been pointed out that when God puts them there, it is into a garden. It's a garden that they are to cultivate and to protect and keep. It's not a nature preserve that has to be um, left alone in its pristine and, and, I don't know, like environmentalist, like don't touch it type of thing. It's a garden that has to be, that has to be cultivated. It, it's a place where there is, there's tons of potential. It's all latent potential. It has to be tapped. And thus it must be nurtured and cultivated by those who image God there. And last of all, it is a garden, which means it's fragile. And therefore, it must be protected by those um, whom God has uh, placed All kinds of jobs image God, and you see it in the garden, and you see it in the life of Jesus. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But you know how in our culture, we prize knowledge jobs. Uh, Knowledge jobs are given greater prestige. So if your daughter comes home, and she says she has fallen in love with a neurosurgeon from uh, San Diego— Normally, that's better to us than if she's fallen in love with a guy who works and manages an oil rig in South Dakota. Now, both of the jobs pay well, and both of the guys are from SD, but <laughs> but our society places value judgments on people based upon, you know, how much training it involves and, and how much... how much knowledge is there. And therefore, manual labor and service industry jobs don't come with the same status and prestige. But the garden tells us otherwise. It tells us that all our work is in some way gardening. Whatever your job is, I guarantee it, in some way, you are imaging God. You are imaging the work of God in Genesis 1, creation, or you're imaging Adam and Eve and their work in Genesis 2, or you're imaging the Son of God who came to earth to show us what it means to really live. You know, Jesus comes to earth when he um, arrives on the scene at the age of 30. He's this very intellectual, a trained knowledge worker. He's a rabbi. He knows theology. He's been trained in the scriptures. But what is the job Jesus is most famous for? He's a carpenter. And that covers everything from you know, building houses to uh, putting on, um, you know, making furniture, putting on roofs, tiling floors, lugging wood. And I said this before, can you imagine at the end of the day, one of his managers telling him to sweep the job site at the end of the day, and Jesus Christ being like, I don't do that. You know, of course not, because there's, I mean, a carpenter, he'll, he'll do anything, What does that tell us? It tells us that there is equal dignity in all forms of work. You don't have to become a pastor and a preacher to be doing something truly dignifying, and you can find pleasure in whatever you do. As long as you are consciously imaging him, I think you will. So that's number two. Number three I mean, the greatest problem with our work on earth is that it's cursed. And part of the curse is that the land is going to bear these thorns and thistles, which is a metaphorical way of saying that however we try to cultivate the garden or the land, we're going to be blocked every step of the way. And I mean, that's why so many days are bad days at at work. Um, It's a curse to, it's, it's a part of our world that uh, we find a lot of resistance. But number three, even on the bad days, one of the things we should be thankful for is at least we got work to do. Because we need it. You, You don't work simply to get a paycheck. You work for your sanity. Isn't that true? I mean, isn't that why when someone is cut off from work due to age or infirmity or injury, they suffer a profound sense of internal loss? Isn't that why when you talk to people who are stuck in nursing homes or have to be in the hospital for a long period of time, their biggest regret is they don't have anything productive to do? And when we are cut off from our work, we discover just how much we need it. We don't simply need a paycheck. We don't need to work for a paycheck. We need just to work for work's sake. And it's also why when you've had a really productive day at work, And and you come home at the end of that day. I mean, sure, you're tired, but there's that sense of like, ah, you felt so productive. This was good. And you lay your head down on the pillow at night. This was good. That's exactly what God is doing in Genesis 1. At the end of each of the creation days, he looks out at everything he had done during that day. And he says, man, job well done this This was good, except, except he doesn't say man he just <laughs> he, he just says it's good, um, even on my bad days, one of the things one of the games or i don 't know the things i 'll just tell myself is, you know Brad, you got a lot to be thankful for. you are not a slave. I mean at least you get to go do whatever your work is as a free man or as a free woman. you realize don't you that if we were born like in, in virtually any other century in all of human history, that wouldn't be true of us. That wouldn't be true of the majority of us. In Jesus' day, I think it's something like 40% of the entire Roman Empire were slaves. As many as 60 million people were slaves. They did all the work in the empire so that the elites could just enjoy lives of uh, leisure and contemplation. Man, at least you get to work as a free man. And I find it interesting. You know how Paul in his writings will address slaves, Christian slaves. And at one point, um, he's trying to tell them that even your slave labor, labor is important and it's dignified. Even the work of slaves is not worthless. Paul writes that your job is the will of God for you and therefore work for the Lord. And don't simply work in order to please your master when he's looking at you. Realize that you have a master in heaven and he's always looking at you. So work for the Lord. That is God's will for you, your job. And I think he would say the very same thing to us today, even to those of us who are most disgruntled with our jobs. Your job is the will of God for you. Do it for the Lord and be thankful for it. Now I think of the quote that is attributed to Martin Luther. When they asked him, how should, uh, how can I be a good Christian shoemaker? It's probably asked in, um, you know, by some artisan or in his day uh, in Germany. And th- nowadays we might think, well, the way to be a Christian shoemaker is you put Bible verses in the soles of the shoes or something like that. Or you come up with some catchy slogan about, you know, feet that'll take you higher. <laughs> Luther's answer was not that, <laughs> It was just make a great shoe and sell it at a fair price. And he said, if you do your work excellently and fairly, then you are loving and serving your community and then you are glorifying God. Yeah, so number three, just be thankful. Um, You're a free man and you got work. Number four, don't forget the part of your calling in your job is to be salt and light there. Jesus tells us, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I mean, salt was in that day used, still is, as a preservative to keep meat from spoiling. You are, you are salt if you are light. That means your life should be so beautiful that when it comes into contact with other parts of the world, the beauty of your life shows up other things for what they really are. So a Christian in a medical profession um, there's going to be plenty of pressure to do procedures that are financially lucrative but don't really add to your patient's quality of life. Uh, a Christian in marketing will be put in situations where the ad campaign appeals to the worst of human nature. A Christian in business will often see that companies only consider the bottom line. They uh, their practices put financial profit ahead of the good of employees. Um, or the good of the customer or the community. A Christian who works in a Christian institution will find that some of its practices, its policies are hypocritical. What are you going to do? If you are light, you will shine by simply being a conscientious Christian and winsomely articulating those those convictions to those you work with. I say winsomely because, I mean, there are plenty of Christians who do it very clumsily. And they articulate their objections either to management or to others in such a way that, I mean, it's, they lack grace, they lack wisdom, and nobody else will listen to them as a result of that. But if you want to shine, uh, then you do so with grace and with tact. And even in the small things, it's like when you refuse to be part of the gossip, when you choose to be the person who finds words of encouragement when, uh, that build others up. Even in the small things like how you respond to work pressure, how you react to criticism, and how frequently you show just simple kindness to the people you work with. You you are there uh, as salt to make your work work better. You are there as light to expose things for what they really are. You probably remember the C.S. Lewis illustration. It says some some days we um, guys will pull out a pair of socks from our drawer And we can't tell if they're black or they're blue. You know, they're just a little too close on the color spectrum. You can't tell in your closet, under the closet light. So you have to go out to a window and hold them up in front of the window in the good light. A real good light shows you the real colors. And if you are a Christian walking like Jesus, then the beauty of your life shows everybody around you what is good and what is bad. Uh, there's so much more I could say about uh, this topic of vocation. You know, I'm just scratching the surface. If you maybe you're at the stage of your life where you're wondering, how do I d- discern my va- vocation? How do I know what it is I'm supposed to do? Yeah, message me, I'll give you what I've got as far as that's concerned. But let me finish with the quote on, on the front of the bulletin. Often tri- attributed to Martin Luther. But scholars, as they they have studied his writings, say, we can't find it anywhere. I love this quote. (laughs) Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Scholars believe that the first time that quote shows up in the literature is, of all places, in the German Confessing Church during the days of Nazi oppression, to encourage them when everything really was going to pieces. And it made me think about my granddaddy's garden. So, my grandfather, he worked for Delta Airlines after World War II. And then, when he retired, maybe he had it before he retired, he planted this huge garden in his backyard in Fayetteville, Georgia. And he would spend you know, hours and hours every day cultivating the garden. And he loved to do it because he could then take the produce and he would share it with anyone. He'd take the produce to church. He would take the produce to his neighbors, just to anyone. I mean, the most delicious fresh vegetables. You know the difference between the grocery store vegetables and the fresh garden vegetables. I mean, it's just, it's to die for. Uh, and I, what I, my advice that I'd give, especially to younger Christians, is why don't you, why don't you plant a tree? Why don't you cultivate a garden? Why don't you share the produce? And I mean that both metaphorically and maybe I mean that literally too. But right now there is so much anxiety about, you know, this feeling that I got to do something. You know, the world is going to hell. I got to fix the world. I got to do something. Everything everything is nuts. And it just contributes to this antsy, anxious, restless spirit inside of us. What am I going to do? At the beginning of the pandemic, I talked to you about First Thessalonians chapter four, verses eight through twelve. Pa- Paul starts out with these words: "Make it your ambition to dot dot dot." What do you think he's going to say? Make it your ambition to change the world, fix the world. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. He says, "Lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands." just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. We talked about how uh, one of the most revolutionary things we can do right now is simply live in quiet faithfulness. And that includes working hard in our jobs and providing for our families and building up the church and earning the respect of outsiders, and to First Thessalonians 4, I would add one other passage, Ephesians 4.28, where he's talking to a new convert to Christianity who previously lived a life as a thief. And he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And I, it's like he's saying, plant the apple tree and share it with your neighbor What's the most revolutionary thing we can do right now is just like be faithful in your vocation and pursue kindness and generosity at all times. So to recap where we've been, number one, rediscover the doctrine of Christian vocation. That's really the most important part of it. Vocation is not primarily self-fulfillment. It is about serving your neighbor. Number two, All forms of work image our Creator, and when we image Him, there is dignity and pleasure to be found in it all. Number three, we need work, and so give thanks if you got it. Give thanks if you're a free man or a woman. Number four, wherever God has placed you, be be sure to be salt and light there. And then number five, make it your aspiration to pursue quiet faithfulness, a life which includes planting your tree and sharing with your neighbor Friends, the last thing I want to say is if Christians were known for those things instead of being known for all the other things we're known for right now, the gospel would find so much more a receptive audience in the world, wouldn't it? And there's no time like the the present to begin. It's not too late to use our bodies this way. This is what God desires for us. This is This is to work unto the Lord and not to ourselves. Let's begin it now. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.